Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The story of Thanksgiving is fascinating because every American knows it or thinks they do. And everyone can imagine from art and cartoons what people looked like. But the pilgrims, I mean, who were they? Why did they leave England? Yes, they came over in the Mayflower, but as risky a journey as that was in 1620, when mostly adventurers, not families, were landing on our shores, why did they take such a chance? Alec Ryrie is a historian who is presently professor of divinity at Gresham College in London and professor of the history of Christianity at Durham College. Good to have you with us. How are you? Uh, It's great to be with you. Who were the pilgrims? Why did they feel they had to leave England? Let's ask the most basic of questions. Uh, Well, these were the people who we would call Puritans. Um, England had had a Protestant Reformation, Henry VIII and all that. It's thrown off the Pope um, and and set up an independent Church of England, which is supposed to be embracing the Protestant Reformation. But as far as a lot of English people are concerned, that process hasn't gone far enough. It hasn't properly been finished. Um, It's referred to at the time as being but halfly reformed. You know, they've they've only got half the way. And the people in England who've been pressing for that process to get finished, by the time we get to the 1610s, have spent 50 years banging their head against a brick wall. Um, First, Queen Elizabeth I, and then after her, King James I, are refusing to budge on any of their demands to get rid of what they see as as far too many remnants of Catholicism still left within the within the church, both in terms of just kind of everyday but niggling matters of of um, liturgy and practice and ceremonial, but also some really big substantial questions about just how the church should be governed, whether it, it, this should be a a, a free church of equal ministers able to look after its own affairs or whether it's going to be under the thumb of the king or the queen. And eventually, some of them get to the point of feeling that they've they've had enough. They've been thrown out of their, of, of their jobs. They've been barred from any kind of public advancement. Some of them have even been thrown in prison, a few even executed for 
you know, continuing to protest against what the um, what what the government's letting them do. So really, they they don't have any particular interest in in America as such. What they want is somewhere where they can be free to practice their religion while also being allowed to see themselves as English subjects. And it's a sign of how desperate that need is that they're willing to take this you know, extraordinarily difficult and dangerous journey across the ocean in order to fulfill that need. Yeah, it was difficult. In fact, the first ship before the Mayflower, the, the Speedwell, has to turn back because it just turned out not to be seaworthy for the Atlantic Ocean. And even on their way to America, people just, you know, always think of this as there's one group, the Pilgrims, the Puritans, and then there's the, you know, and then there's Native Americans, which we'll get to in a moment. Actually, the the Pilgrims, as they mainly later came to be called, uh, were fighting among themselves too. I mean, there were there were people from what was called the English Separatist Church who were fighting with other other members of the group. I mean, there was there was a there was a lot of battling over religion that was still going on when they came to America. Oh, sure. I mean, these are people who have who are doing this because they care so desperately about religious purity that they're willing to leave everything behind them in order to do it. So these are these are opinionated folks. Um, and you put a hundred people like that in a boat together, they're not all going to agree with each other. Um, and the early colonies in New England, and and this, I mean this goes right on through, are are characterised by really sharp, bitter divisions over matters that to outsiders can look kind of trivial. Um, but you know, if you're right in the heart of these things, they're 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 really not. Um, and it's one of the reasons why that that first colony, the Plymouth colony, in the end ends up being overshadowed by the one that follows 10 years later at Massachusetts Bay. When they get to America, things don't go well. They survive the trip over in the Mayflower, but half of them starve to death during the winter. And really, they probably only survived because of one Native American, one member of the Wampanoag people who had been in that area for 10,000 years, Squanto, who had been captured by the explorer John Smith, meant to be a slave, somehow escaped, knew English, and shows them how to grow corn and other North American crops, where to fish, where to find beaver, and all of that. It's it's probably the only reason why they survived long enough for us to even know they existed. That's right. And I mean, we we forget just what a desperate venture this is. And I, 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 I don't think we can assume that they themselves understood how desperate it was going to be. Nobody had any idea what the winters in that part of North America were going to be like. And of course, there'd been desperate problems for most of the previous European settlements. The um, you know, repeated attempts at French settlement in on, on the East Coast in the 16th century, which had failed. The Roanoke colony um, famously disappears um, in, in, in Elizabeth's reign. The Jamestown colony survives, but by the skin of its teeth, it's a really close call in its first couple of years. Um, and yeah, as you say, the crossing was the bit that they thought was going to be hard. And a couple of people die on the crossing, but then fully half of them, 50 people basically die over the over the course of that of that first winter. Um, and it is only the, the slow discovery of just having to learn how to farm and feed yourself almost from scratch in this completely new environment. Um, as they as they you know, be, begin to get themselves established there, once they've done that, once they're past that 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 first crisis, um, then the colony starts to prosper really quite quickly. 
but it's a it's a very touch and go business to begin. Sixteen twenty one is the shared meal that starts generating the eventual Thanksgiving story. Probably venison and seafood, not not uh, turkey and and all of the things that we think of. But relations with Native Americans really starts to fall apart as more and more settlers come. Yeah, and I mean, I have to say that I mean, obviously, the sixteen twenty one event is is what's mostly been remembered, but. As you know, there's a, a, a wide dispute about exactly when and where the first Thanksgiving was. Um, Virginians will claim that, that, that what, what happened in Virginia in 1619 is the, is, is, is the origins of it. And I, without wanting to get into any of those disputes, I don't have a dog in this fight. Um, I, I think that tells us something about the way that Thanksgivings of all kinds are cropping up all over. Um, that this idea of of holding a a, a feast of Thanksgiving um, in as a parallel to the sort of festivals of repentance that you might give for public sins, so giving a festival of Thanksgiving to God for for, for deliverance, is very much a part of that Puritan culture. It would have come would have come really naturally to them. But as you say, it's the involvement of the of the Native Americans that is is so crucial to both to their survival in that first instance and to the way that the stories come to, to be remembered. Um, within a couple of years, that initial story of desperate colonists needing Native American help for survival has begun to swing right round. Um, you know, only a couple of years after the, the arrival of the, the so-called pilgrims um, in, in New England, you have the first really serious outbreak of violence between um, settlers and native peoples in Virginia. Um, and that's, it's the beginning of this, this series of, of conflicts. The settlers like to think of themselves as different from the Spanish, who they see as, as you know, barbaric enslavers. They say, no, we want to live in peace with the native peoples. We want to, to, to bring them to Christianity. We'll trade equally with them. We won't steal land from them. We'll buy it. But all of those good intentions get swept away under sheer pressure of, of numbers, the opportunity, the ability to, to take what they can from these people. The fact that traders are going out beyond the settlements um, and trading in a, in a you know, always at least pretty exploitative way with, 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 with the native peoples. It creates a dynamic that their good intentions just aren't good enough to stop. Alec Ryrie is a historian, again, presently professor of divinity at Gresham College in London and professor of the history of Christianity at Durham College. And a missing part of the history, I think, for many Americans who just kind of have a picture of what that Thanksgiving was, but not much of a picture of who the people were sitting there. Alec, thank you so much for being with us. Much appreciated. It's been great to be with you. Thanks. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Every year after the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade for almost two decades now, we have watched the National Dog Show hosted by John O'Hurley best known to many as Jay Peterman on Seinfeld, but the true extent of his talents was really on show in the musical Chicago. And now a man who was once 
one of People Magazine's sexiest men alive is not what you would usually associate with the word dog, but, you know, there you have it, and here you have John O'Hurley. Hi, John, how are you? <laughs> well, in in, uh, in defense of that, uh, of that uh, moniker from People Magazine, I think they were weighing in more heavily on the alive part than the sexy. <laughs> well, let's explore the dog part then. I've seen your books. Before your dog can eat your homework, first you have to do it. And it's okay to miss the bed in the first jump and other life lessons I've learned from dogs and your latest book for children, The Perfect Dog. So obviously, love of dogs is not just a hosting gig. Has this been a lifelong thing? No, it's, you know, I, I, don't, I don't ever remember a time in my life when I didn't have a dog. I've always, uh, uh, some my earliest memories were of my little dachshund, Taffy, that would follow me, wait for me to come home from school every day, and then follow me down to the uh, swamp at the end of the road, and that's where she and I would circumnavigate the, uh, the pond and look for turtles and everything that we could possibly find. But I've always had a dog, and as I wrote in my first book, I am a better person with a dog in my lap. Excellent. That, that I all take it was in Kittery, Maine, where you grew up? Well, it's actually in, uh, I was born in Maine, uh, but moved, grew up most of my life uh, throughout New England, the Boston area for a while, and most of my life in Connecticut, actually, in the Hartford area. Well, let's talk about the dog show. This is going to be different this year. No audience. I mean, do the dogs react to the audience? Are they going to miss that? Uh, well, you know, this will be the first time we have done it. So, yes, it will be a dog show done differently this year. Uh, but um, we're actually, normally we would have 2,000 dogs that would go through breed competitions and then work their way up through a process of elimination to uh, the final uh, the final best in show class, with, which would feature the winner of each of the seven groups. Uh, one dog would be determined as best in show. Uh, this year we will have uh, between five and six hundred dogs. Um, a smaller amount, however, all of these dogs are past uh, breed champions. So this year uh, it's different, but we're getting the best of the best. The success of this thing is stunning because the network television environment these days, if you get a show, unlike the Seinfeld days, if you get six million people, that's considered a hit show. The National Dog Show, with you hosting, gets about 25 million viewers. And actually, it gets larger than that because they show it all year long. You know, it's used as something that they put on a cable all year long. So the, the total annual viewership is up over uh, 30, or between 30 and 35 million. Yeah, it's uh, something of a phenomenon. But I also, you know, I, I have to think of it as one of the great pieces of television programming. Uh, because for years, NBC had this slot between the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and football. And it was a two-hour slot from 12 till 2. And they used to show reruns of It's a Wonderful Life, which would uh, you know, get a, get a very tiny, uh, a very tiny uh, a slow descending spiral of an audience. And uh, they put this in there. And the first year back in 2002, we got 20 million people watching it. So it was uh, an instant hit and a surprise to everyone. When you're there, what are what are the owners like? How emotional is this for the owners? I mean, my cats watch it just to laugh at animals doing what they're told, something that, you know, my cats will have absolutely <laughs> uh, no part in. But when you watch these people prepare, win or lose, what's it like for them? 
well, this is, you know, this is their life. Uh, these people travel. You know, this is a group of people that this is their sport, so to speak. And so they travel from uh, location to location. Uh, most, some people, uh, every weekend. You know, they, it's, uh, if you look out in the parking lot, there's always about uh, 250 RVs out there. Uh, and this is a, not only uh, a life, but a lifestyle for many people. They love their dogs, and uh, uh, and they love to celebrate the rich history of dog breeding in this country, and that is the purpose of the show. Every dog has a historical uh, written standard that it uh, has to abide by, and that's what they are judged against. So in a sense, the dogs are really not being judged um, against each other uh, as to who's cuter. Uh, it's who is the best representation of the historical breed and i guess that ends up with the results being because if you go with cuter and you go with what many americans love the dogs that people seem to love most for their own homes don't seem to win i'm thinking of golden retrievers for instance well you know you bring up a very good point Gil. For, uh, for many many years i've been saying you know the golden retriever a very one of the most popular registered breeds in the akc um, menu and uh I, for some reason, they just don't get into that. Uh, they'll be chosen perhaps for the you know one of the final seven group winners, but they don't make it as best in show. And and for the life of me, I scratch my head because we have had some extraordinary examples. So I don't know. It's a little bit like uh, I think the golden retriever is the Susan Lucci of of, uh, of pets in the, in the pet arena. I think it took Susan nineteen. 19- 19 years to win her first uh, Emmy, and deservedly so, but... Uh, I think I saw you once say that, because I know how attached you are to dogs, we established that at the beginning, that dogs do the work of angels. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, dogs have absolutely... They, they, they have no other purpose on Earth than to love, basically. That's all they know how to do. Uh, and they teach us wonderful things. As I wrote in my first book, that, uh, you know, there are so many life lessons that we learn from our dogs. Not the least of which is uh, learning to live in the present moment. Dogs live essentially stress-free. They don't worry about the future. They don't live in the past. And if you don't believe me, try and reprimand a dog for something they did on the floor 15 minutes ago. And I guarantee you they've already forgiven themselves for it. Um <laughs> They, you know, they just have no, they have no sense in that there's a, and there's a, a beautiful lesson in that about learning to live in the present moment. Uh, it's the source of all of our stress and anxiety. And I won't go on to the rant about that. But, you know, dogs are, their angelic nature is that they are totally giving to us. Whatever we're doing, whatever we're thinking of doing is much more interesting than what they had in mind. How many dogs do you have right now? Uh, two. I uh, have a little... Uh, We'll have an East named Lucy, and then uh, a little rescue dog. If I would, if I was to say that she's a mixed breed, but probably all two hundred and eight breeds are, are in there somewhere. Uh, she has a, a little, a little bit of everything. <laughs> rescue dogs almost always have a story, though. Does does this one have a story? Well, they do actually. Yeah, yeah. This one sadly was uh, in in a hoarder's home. Uh, they rescued. Uh, she was rescued among about thirty other dogs, I believe. But um, it was a very strange incident. I uh, I was uh, speaking at the um, uh, ASPCA there in St. Louis, and um, uh, this dog happened to be there in the shelter. Uh, and I said to them, I really should have a dog in my arms while I'm speaking. So I went in, and this dog turned her head like the redhead at the cocktail party, and that was uh, that was it. I brought her out, held her in my arms, and during the process of speaking to the media, she had worked her way inside of my jacket 
and uh, was resting her head uh, totally, uh, totally disappeared under the lapel of my jacket. I opened my lapel and said, would somebody like to come back to Beverly Hills? And so the rest is history. So many things we could talk about in the short time. We have uh, Seinfeld, mm. Chicago, that first season of Dancing with the Stars and all of that. But I want to give you a chance because this is, at the end of the year, a, a time of giving. And I know uh, epilepsy, especially sudden unexplained death in epilepsy, is a cause very, very close to your heart for, for unfortunately tragic reasons. And I want to give you a chance to talk about that. Well, it is. Thank you, Gil. I appreciate that. Yeah, I lost my sister back when I was uh, when I was 16 years old, and she was 17. It was actually uh, she passed away on her final day of school, her junior year, uh, and just sadly, my father, who was a very gifted uh, ear, nose, and throat surgeon, uh, you know, went into her room uh, that morning, and she had just passed. Uh, she had died during the evening from. Some, at some point during the night uh, from um, a thing, a syndrome called sudden unexplained death and epilepsy. People with epilepsy just, they have no reason to figure this out. They have no idea of why it happens. They just pass away. And uh, it's, uh, it's every parent's nightmare. And uh, for, the, for the thousands and thousands of people that are afflicted by epilepsy across the country, it's, uh, it's a very difficult thing, especially uh, in the case of children. Well, for people who want more information about that, you can look under uh, SUDEP and find out more about not just John's involvement, about but about this cause at this time of year. Mm-hmm. Uh, finishing up with, with the happier thing, looking forward to, what is the 19th season? Year number 19, yes. Uh, and oddly enough, this is going to look different because uh, my co-host David Fry and I are actually going to be in our homes hosting the National Dog Show. So we will be there watching the same show you are, except we'll be doing it from our homes with our dogs in our laps. This is the first time in nearly 20 years that I've actually had Thanksgiving at home. Well, that that will be lovely for everybody then. John O'Hurley is the Master of Ceremonies for the broadcast of the National Dog Show, which comes on right after the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. John, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you, Gil. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Thanksgiving Day Special from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving Special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. It isn't just families having a different Thanksgiving this year because of the virus surge at charities, churches, and the like across the country. Dining halls that offer meals, usually on Thanksgiving as well as many year-round for those who are needy, cannot gather people together who usually have their best meal of the year on this holiday. One of those places is St. Anthony's in San Francisco, where I was privileged for years to broadcast from the dining hall on Thanksgiving, talking to people and raising money for an effort that has fed hundreds daily for some 70 years now. Susie Cheedy is Director of Development at St. Anthony's. Susie, good to have you with us. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me today. I'm fine, but this is interesting. Is this the first time the dining hall itself has been closed on Thanksgiving? This is the first time that St. Anthony's Dining Hall, um, the dining room, has been closed on Thanksgiving. You know, our organization started with our dining room on October 4th, 1950. So that was 70 years ago. Um, And it was set up as more than just a meal. It was set up as a place where people could gather, have conversation and connect as a community. Um, But because of 
COVID-19, we haven't been able to do that. We've modified our programs in early March um, and we still create, make, and package healthy meals that we hand out the door. Right now, on average, we are serving um, about 2,800 meals a day out the door, and Thanksgiving um, will be a little different this year. However, we have um, access to our street, which is closed, and so we will have some seating, limited seating outside where people can eat um, safely distanced um, at a table. And that's one of the important things to underline here. The dining halls are not just meals. They're also ways to, you know, bring people in who may not have contact with a lot of people. It gets them into the computer room because, you know, online is where the jobs are these days. It gets them, you mentioned, you know, clothing. You have, you know, clothing for people when they go to an interview so they look good. So really being able to operate at this time and under these conditions is it's not just food. This is a whole, even getting people in for medication and things, this is an important draw to help people. That is that is correct. I mean, um, you know, first you mentioned it's, we can't sit at the table anymore. And this St. Anthony's is oftentimes, it's oftentimes the only time a person hears somebody call them by their name or look them in the eye and say a few nice words to them. And so we're really proud of that. But the dining room is also the first foray into all of our other programs. Um, so this year we decided to cancel our uh, curbside turkey drive uh, for Thanksgiving. We traditionally have it for the, the week leading up to Thanksgiving. Um, and we usually get thousands of turkeys and hams and all kinds of food that we use, not only on Thanksgiving and Christmas, but throughout the year. Um, but this year, because of uh, coronavirus, we decided to cancel the in-person curbside turkey drive um, and switch it to a virtual turkey drive um, so that people can go online in our shopping cart, um, purchase turkeys or hams or other um, food items, or even coats and jackets and socks for our clothing program. I mean, it's a great way to support seeing Anthony's during the holidays. I think what surprises people who come to the dining hall, maybe to visit and expect to see only mentally ill homeless people in the hall. And of course, they need these services and they are thankfully there. But there are seniors and there are working poor and there are disabled people. And there are people who have worked for decades, want to work now, but because of either injury or age can't get hired. There are veterans. Yeah, you're 100% correct. Um, while many of the people who we serve are experiencing homelessness, many, many are not. They're housed, um, but then have to choose between purchasing food for a meal, paying rent or their electricity bill. Um, one of the largest um, and growing um, group of people that we're seeing are vets and seniors. I mean, we also see a lot of families in our dining room and in um, especially in our free medical clinic and clothing program. And so so while traditionally people think of St. Anthony's as a dining hall um, serving hot meals to people who are experiencing homelessness, we are so much more than that. Last thing, I remember 2008 when the recession hit at the end of the year. I started seeing people lining up at St. Anthony's in, you know, jacket and ties, people who were spending the rest of the day yeah. you know, looking for a job. Have you seen a difference in the people who have been coming since COVID started? Um, what we've seen are many more seniors. Um, and we've seen, um, um, especially at the beginning of COVID, a rise in the number of people coming to us for services. We were one of the only dining rooms open in the entire city. And so we saw people not only from the Tenderloin neighborhood where we're located, but from across the city 
Um, and at one point we were serving 36 or 3,700 meals a day. Wow. Well, I'm glad you're there and found some way to keep the meals coming at St. Anthony's in San Francisco. Just an example of the kind of meal programs and more that are around this country that have been affected by COVID. Susie Sheedy is Director of Development at St. Anthony's. Susie, thank you so much for being with us and happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you. We're proud to be part of the San Francisco community that can help others. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We talk a good deal about Thanksgiving meals. You rarely hear anybody talk about the drinks to go with it. So let's do that. Ray Isle is the executive wine editor of Food and Wine Magazine. Ray, good to have you with us. And first of all, what would be different about Thanksgiving meal that would affect what wine I use? My pairing with turkey, cranberry sauce. I don't want anybody to drink too much because I want them to go home. You know, I don't want them on the couch all night. So what's different about Thanksgiving? Yeah. So the difference about Thanksgiving is is essentially what you just said, that that on some level you're looking at pairing question is kind of crazy because it's you've got turkey and you've got Brussels sprouts and you've got, you know, mashed potatoes with gravy and you've got, you know, cornbread stuffing and you've got, you know, 17 different things on the table and everybody is kind of mixing and matching as they as they see fit. So I kind of think there's two ways to go about it. The, the first way is to look for wines that just broadly pair with almost everything that are just friendly to all kinds of food. And the other way is to, and this, this is what I've kind of gone to recently is, is not even worrying too much about that and, and thinking more about who's coming over and, and what they would like. And in a way, pairing your wine more to the, to the, you know, group you've got on hand than to the food itself. Cause you know, if it's a family dinner with your, your father-in-law and coat and tie and all that kind of thing. You know, he may not want the cloudy hipster natural wine <laughs> that you picked up in Williamsburg in Brooklyn, you know, the other day. So, so this kind of, it's kind of, you can go two ways with it that way, I think. Yeah. And you know, I like that idea of pairing the wine with people. You know, I hear these arguments when people are buying wine, oh, but I, it has to, you know, work with uh, this food or that food. But I find when you kind of get away from that, when you just talk to people, there's some people that like sweet wines, some people like dry wines, and they don't care what the food is. Absolutely. They, and they don't. And the, and the truth is Thanksgiving, you know, I, I don't think there's been a Thanksgiving since the dawn of Thanksgiving where, where someone has sat, sat back and looked at the host and said, you know, wow, you know, this, this Riesling you picked really goes amazingly well with the stuffing. I mean, I just don't think it's ever happened. And so I think it is. And, and the other thing about Thanksgiving is while it's a, it is a, it's a meal, but it's a social meal. It's all about, it's all about getting together and, and talking to whether it's your friends for Friendsgiving or whether it's like your family, it's about, it's about it's about conversation and being together. And so while people love to eat Thanksgiving dinner, they're constantly talking while they're doing it and not really paying, you know, sort of like sommelier level attention to whether this wine goes amazingly well with this food. And so, yeah, so it's like, you know, my my I go to my in-laws family for Thanksgiving every year and, you know, most of the older set likes Chardonnay. <laughs> that's, you know, that's their, their fave wine. And I don't really see a point trying to like make them like something they don't like. Cause I think it goes better with Brussels sprouts. You know, it, it seems like a kind of a, I mean, holidays are complicated enough. So, <laughs> so don't annoy people with wine. With you talking about how people are eating and talking at the same time, I'm frankly, Thanksgiving, I pair the wine with a tablecloth. If you want red wine, you have to eat with the kids at the folding table. 
And, and actually, do you have anything for that? <laughs> I do. You know, so there's a, I, and I've been a fan of this product for a while. It's called Wine Away, and it's a, it's an, it's a, actually made with citrus oil. So it's, it's an organic product. You can find it online. You can find it on Amazon. And I, I mean, I, I literally knocked a glass of red wine across a beige carpet <laughs> in my, in my house the other night, and I, and I zapped it with Wine Away and, and you know, paper towels, and, and it's gone. It looks fine. And so it's a, it's a cool product. It, it smells a little bit like you just peeled an orange <laughs> right after you use it, but, but it works on red wine like a charm. Um, so that's pretty cool. All right. That's perfect. Now, I don't know how many people are going to be able to have big dinners this year, but for those who are, or those who just need to be on you know, a budget in either case, you're trying to keep the cost down. What do you have? I think, you know, I, I think keeping the cost down is is a good thing. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, there's a, there's a lot of really good affordable wine out there and you don't need to spend a fortune to get great wine. Um, so we just did a, I just did a big Thanksgiving, um, you know, recommendation piece in, in the November issue of Food and Wine. And I went for, you know, a couple of things for white wines. Um, I love when I'm at Valley Pinot Gris, it's Oregon, you know, they kind of, even though people love Chardonnay, Pinot Gris is, has a fair amount of body to it. Um, I recommended one from Chemistry, which is a new brand. There's a bunch of others out there. It's also a very easygoing wine. It, it doesn't, you know, it won't go wrong with anything you pour it with. And then red wine, um, you know, I, I, I went for, I, I, I always go for Pinot Noir. It's a, you know, it's a crowd one, it's a crowd pleaser Two, It goes great with food across, across the, you know, across the zone. And the other thing is, you know, I, I really think Rosé is a, is a great option. It, it's kind of moved from being an only during the summer wine to an, to a pretty much straight through the year wine. And there's so, and there's a bunch of good Rosé out there. I, I recommended one from Sonoma called Boletto that I, that I love, but, and I think the California ones have a little more, more oomph and a little more body to them than the Provencal ones. And that makes for a nice thing with, with roast turkey and everything. Um, so those are, those are three affordable zones that I, that I like a lot. I'm going to ask a question that's going to annoy wine connoisseurs, but when I lived in wine country in California, a lot of the vintners told me, you know, for these particular wines of mine, screw caps would actually be better than corks, especially the ones meant to be drunk young. But they said, but there's a snobbery angle and, and, and I can't use them because if people, you know, don't see a cork, they're going to think it's like Italian Swiss colony or something. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's changed somewhat. I mean, you can now find um, quite good wines and quite expensive wines sealed with, with, with screw caps. And, and they are, I mean, there's, there's, there's two arguments. One, corks, corks actually the bark of a tree. It's, you know, you strip off the bark of the tree, you turn it into a cork. And so there's a, a small percentage of corks that affect the flavor of the wine and they make it taste musty, kind of like um, a cardboard box. It's very low. The cork, the cork industry has gotten its act together. So it's a much lower percentage than it used to be. Screw caps don't do that. They're basically a perfect seal. On the other hand, they're a little bit less environmentally sustainable because they're metal and they just go into a landfill and, you know, corks will degrade over time. And plus cork trees are renewable. So let's talk about chilling because this is something I think that confuses a lot of people. A lot of people, you know, forget and then they kind of like panic and they throw the wine in the freezer. Sometimes, especially if they bought a bunch of wine because they have people coming over, they forget that it's there. But even reds should be chilled at least a, a little bit. So talk about what the rules are there. Generally speaking, we tend to serve white wines too cold and red wines too warm. Um, if you take a white right out of the fridge, it's about 37 degrees. It, it's cold, but it really mutes the flavors um, when it's that cold. Um, and with reds, we tend to serve them straight out of the bottle at room temperature. And, and I will guarantee you any red tastes better and is more refreshing and is brighter sort of aromatically at about five degrees below room temperature. So I always suggest 
pull your whites out of the fridge, you know, 15, 20 minutes before you're going to serve them. Just let them warm up a little bit so that they, they show more of the, of the flavor and aroma that they've got. And for reds, chuck them in the fridge about 20 minutes before you're going to serve them, 20 to 30, just to bring them down a little bit below room temperature. You don't want them cold necessarily, but, but you'll be surprised by how much better they taste. And if you do a side by side, and this, this is kind of fun. I mean, if you throw, if you've got two bottles of the same red wine, you throw one into the fridge for 30 minutes, you keep the other one out at room temperature, pull the one out of the fridge, pour a glass of each. I'll guarantee you, you'll prefer the one that's just a little bit colder than room temperature every time. And the other thing is, as you said, we also often forget that <laughs> that the wine was supposed to be cold. And the, the single fastest way to chill down your wine is a bucket of ice with water in it. Because um, if you just use ice, there's a lot of air in there. The water you know, basically flows around the wine and conducts the cold in the wine. That'll take you 20 minutes right there to chill down a bottle of wine. I like it. You ever leave a bottle of wine in the freezer? Oh God. <laughs> so many times. I mean, it's, it's just inevitable. You have a dinner party. You're like, you need another cold bottle of wine. You throw it in the freezer and then you realize you've got a cold bottle of wine and you wake up the next morning and you've got this, you know, ideally not exploded, but frozen bottle of wine. And, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, I mean, I may, I may be a wine pro, but I've done that more times than, than I need to. It's especially bad when it's champagne, because then it almost always will blow up in your freezer, um, which is a very disheartening thing to wake up to after a party. <laughs> okay. Well, listen, it's, sometimes it's the least disheartening thing when you wake up after a party where people have been drinking. In any case, <laughs> for more of Ray Isle's recommendations for Thanksgiving, there's a beautiful article in the new Food and Wine. Ray Isle is the executive wine editor of Food and Wine magazine. Ray, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Welcome back to the Thanksgiving special from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Here's something many Americans may agree on after this past year. I need a drink. Of course, in this case, we're talking about holiday drinks, whether it's Thanksgiving, as in, boy, was this year a turkey, or for the holidays coming up as Santa, never mind the pony, bring me a vaccine. Anyway, Lauren Iannotti is editor-in-chief of Rachel Ray in Season. She's going to be with us throughout the broadcast with tips for us. And let's get right to it, Lauren. After this year, I feel like, you know, Nick in the dream sequence part of It's a Wonderful Life when he says, hey, look, mister, we serve hard drinks in here for men who want to get drunk fast, and I don't need any characters around to give the joint atmosphere. So that said, a cinnamon margarita, what's that? Wait, I just want to say what a great impression that was. I feel like I was just regaled with a beautiful performance skill. That was amazing. <laughs> well, thank um, you. There's a big call for Sheldon Leonard impersonators, but let's get back to the cinnamon margarita. I'm in the Northeast. We tend to think margaritas kick in in May. They go away end of August. We have a margarita that is festive and spicy and beautiful for the holidays, and I highly recommend you make it, and it's so simple. You drop three whole cinnamon sticks into a bottle of silver tequila, let it sit for three days, and then what you have is basically cinnamon-flavored tequila. You add some ginger simple syrup, lime juice, club soda, triple sec, and you have a beautiful holiday cocktail. Um, If you want to see the recipe again, if you didn't get all that down, you can go to rachelraymag.com where it lives. But um, yeah, we're all for toasting um, the holidays with something a little bit special and a little bit elevated, and this is a wonderful way to do it. Yeah, even to sugar around the rim of drinks. Absolutely. Sugar is sparkly and pretty. And so when you put it around the rim of the drink, you make your drink sparkly and pretty. Um, And we recommend upping your sugar game even. Um, We like to play around with things like that. So you can take some lime zest and mix it with granulated sugar. You could even add some sparkling sugar, which is like the uh, available near the sprinkles at the grocery store. It's just a little bit more sparkly and pretty. And if you have any kids in the family, you want to keep that away from them. But and then um, and then you put it you get it on the rim and it just makes the drink that much more beautiful. There are all kinds of ways to kind of 
amp up your holiday um, cocktail game just to make it feel a little bit more special than, you know, your sort of what you're saying, your Thursday night, oh my gosh, what's going on out in the world? I need a drink kind of moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. Generally, then you're not using vegetable cutters to brighten these things up, but that's one of the things in Rachel Ray and Season. That's one thing we recommend. So you can get these, they're, they're called vegetable cutters or mini cutters. They're basically like cookie cutters, but you can use them on vegetables. So um, and you can get them um, online, just buy them anywhere. And uh, you take a sw- wide swath of, you know, your lemon peel or your orange peel, and you stamp out these, you know, little stars or hearts or whatnot. And then you take the remaining peel and what's still there, and you drop that into your drink. And it's just a little bit of a more of a prettier twist in your drink. Um, so you just kind of give it a give it a squeeze to make sure the zest comes around the top of the drink, and then drop it in. And then you can use those little cutouts for as garnish on a veggie platter. But people have, you know, kids who want to have something that looks like the grown-ups or probably just a lot of friends who don't drink. And what kinds of things can you serve them with? Huge trend right now is alcohol-free spirits. Basically, uh, it's your booze-free gin or, um, you know, whiskey, whatever, whatever have you. There's... Uh, there are basically, if you can think of it, they, they, they're making it and you can use it in mixed drinks. So if you get this, this, you may see it, you'll see it, you know, at, um, liquor stores, you'll see it at grocery stores because it's alcohol free. Lauren Iannotti is the editor in chief of Rachel Ray in season. Lauren, thank you. Thank you, Gil. This is the Thanksgiving special from the CBS audio network. I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.